it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly chess interview show where we talk with accomplished chess players, authors, and personalities about their lives, their careers, and how to improve at chess. Perpetual Chess is brought to you through the generosity of its Patreon and PayPal supporters and by Chessable.com. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We have another escapee from the chess world rejoining us today. It is my great honor to have the two-time U.S. champion. He's been a top 70 player in the world in the early 1990s. He was also the two-time U.S. junior champion. Uh, Since then, he's been working in the finance world primarily. He worked at another chess player, Peter Thiel's hedge fund for a while. He ran his own hedge fund called appropriately Grandmaster Capital. Um, Back in his active chess days, he was a member of the world champion, or sorry, of the uh, preparation team for Grandmaster Vishwanathan Anand when they played Kasparov in 1995. He wrote a book about that called the Inside, Kasparov versus Anand, the Inside Story of the 1995 World Chess Championship match. He's also the author of a very popular Complete Idiot's Guide to Chess and its successor, Learn to Play Chess Like a Boss. So still tons to talk about chess-wise as well as otherwise, and I am excited to bring him in. So Grandmaster Patrick Wolf, welcome to the show, and how are you? I'm well. Thank you very much, Ben. It's an honor to be on your podcast. Thanks. Yeah, I'm super excited to talk to you. As uh, regular listeners may have heard me mention, I love hearing I love hearing the stories. I don't know if um, it would be offensive to call you an old timer, but certainly someone who's who's been around enough to uh, to accumulate some great stories and have some wisdom and some perspective on on what you achieved in chess and now what you're achieving away from chess. Yeah. But of course. But of course, I want to dive right into chess. So um, I've been reading your 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 book, which I'm. Um, Recent guest of the show and longtime friend of the show, Christopher Chabri, was one of the publishers, along with uh, yourself and Timothy Hankey. H3 Publications came out with this Anon mm-hmm. book, um, which I finally got around to, read, to reading now that I'm interviewing you. And of course, um, you've got your other chess books as well, in addition to your playing career. So um, my first question, Patrick, is just how often you think about chess now that you don't, you're not competitive every day? 
I, I basically think about it all the time. I mean, um, uh, you know, it's kind of white noise in my head. So um, I, I'm pretty sure not a day has gone by that I haven't at some point had a chest position in my head, literally just as sort of white noise. And then um, I still follow chess. Um, you know, one of my favorite things to do is uh, I'll go on chess.com or chess24, follow um, one of the tournaments. You know, we have the you know, the legends of chess now that's going on, and I, I like to follow those games. Um, I'll go to chessgames.com and play over um, play over some old time games as well as play over uh, some recent recently played games. Um, and I also like to play over the computer chess games. And um, it actually surprises me that more chess fans don't seem to spend more time on the computer games because basically the gods are among us now. And <laughs> right. the games that these computers play sometimes, I mean, the interesting ones are extraordinary. Um, so I, I, I think about chess all the time. I'm, I'm, I'm still a fan and I'm sure I will be for the rest of my life. Glad to hear it. And of course, you've been rumored to play some internet blitz over the years. Is that something you're still active in? So, yeah, you know, the, the problem for me for playing online blitz is it's basically like giving a crack addict just unlimited supply. <laughs> so, um, I, I first I first had this problem in 1999 at the Internet Chess Club back when that was the place where everyone played. And. You know, I had, I had graduated um, from college finally. Uh, I was working, you know, my first full-time job as a management consultant. I was working sometimes 60, 70, even 80 or 90 hour weeks at times. It was, you know, very intense. And, you know, from time to time and at my desk, um, and late at night, like I just lose an hour or two playing chess. <laughs> and um, eventually I just had to take it off my machine. And, and from time to time, I'll wander back in and I'll play, and I'll I'll play sort of semi obsessively for a period of time, and then I'll just take it off my machine again and stop. And um and the and the problem for me now as well, of course, is I'm just not as good as I used to be, and it's kind of painful um, because I I know I have some idea of how I used to be able to play chess, particularly sort of in my best years, and I I'm sure I'm at least 200 elo points weaker than I used to be. Um, not just because my openings suck, but also because um, I'm I'm just not as sharp anywhere near as sharp tactically and so forth. And so I love the game, but it's it's painful for me to play when I know I'm just not playing at the same level I used to be able to. And in order for me to get back to that level, well, I'm sure I couldn't get all the way back because at 52, you know. And, and by the way, I heard your interview with Chris uh, Shabri, who's a who's a dear friend and a great guy and super smart. And, you know, the whole sort of fluid versus crystallized intelligence, um, I, without his knowledge of cognitive psychology, I've had a similar type of theory about chess for a long time. Um, and I know at the age of 52, like I've, I've, I've lost a fair amount of fluid intelligence and, and probably my crystallized intelligence <laughs> isn't as good as it used to be either. Um, so, OK, I probably couldn't get back to that level. But in, in order to get back to some sort of fighting shape. I'm sure it would take several months of just completely focused effort. And since I wouldn't be able to get back to the same level anyway, and since I've got lots of other things I want to do, I'm never going to do it. So I think at this point, I'm mainly a fan. But <laughs> you, you, you've but, summed up the chess, the aging chess player's dilemma so well there. I mean, most of us are, are, are coming at it from a lower level than you. But yeah, it's... um. 
it's quite the conundrum. I mean, you know, you can still work on chess just for enjoyment, but I mean, I think especially having been as strong as you were and achieved as much as you did, it's um, I can understand why you've 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 thought it through and just realized it's it's not meant to be. Not meant to be. It's it's amazing to me, by the way, that Anand has managed to stay at the level. And I think finally in the last couple of years, we've really seen sort of the decay, right? And he, he reminds me at this point a little bit of Karpov, um, sort of uh, 27, 28 years ago, I think, when he was sort of beginning his decay. Um, but I mean, Vichy, uh, really, I mean, his second world championship match against Carlson, he came within a hair's breadth of actually um, um, making it an even match. I mean, it was, it was, uh, it's very impressive how Vichy's kept it going. I don't know how he does it, but uh, of course, I've spent my whole life not knowing how Vichy does what he does. So <laughs> why should this be any different? Right. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. We we kind of always, you know, there's a lot of folklore associated with Vichy being sort of a singular genius, but I wouldn't automatically assume that means he's going to age differently than everyone else. But um, whatever it is he's doing seems to, uh, I mean, even as you say, maybe he slowed down a little bit, but still, um, if you control for age, he's as strong as anyone. Oh yeah. No, I mean, I mean, it, it's very, very hard in your late forties to, to, I mean, you know, Victor Korchnoi was some sort of freak of nature, right. And, and sort of leaving him off. Um, it's, I just don't know anybody who was able to sort of now, Vasily Smyslov, I remember, had like a really amazing sort of golden period um, late in his life. Um, but even, even, I mean, even that wasn't at the same level. Um, and uh, and and Vishy, I think, basically kept at the. Um, I mean, I don't know exactly, but until the age of maybe 47, 48, he was probably about as good as he had been in his at his prime. It was pretty extraordinary. Yeah, absolutely extraordinary. And reading your account of your time with Vichy, I mean, it, it was just fascinating. So for listeners, one thing I'd like to to add is, so this book, Kaspar vs. Nine, the inside story of the 1995 World Championship match, I hadn't read it previously, um, not not really by design, just one of those chess books that kind of slipped through the cracks. So um, but Christopher Chabri, who uh, Patrick just mentioned and listeners probably know, he actually has the PDF posted online. Uh, so without guilt, listeners can go download it and read it. And I definitely encourage you guys to. There's some great living history in there. But in the meantime, Patrick, could you talk a little bit, like walk us through your relationship with Vichy? I know that you guys uh, some, had your first encounter in your teens. Yeah, that's true. Um, okay, so I first met Vichy at the World Junior Championship in Finland um, in uh, I, 1984. Um, so I'm pretty sure that's right because I won the U.S. Junior Championship in uh, 1984. And I that's what your book said. So Yeah, so I think it was later that year that I remember, but I think it was later that year I went to the World Junior Championship and um, and did all right, um, nothing nothing special, um, and and met this young Indian kid um, who at the time was himself nothing special in terms of his ability, but was just obviously incredibly talented. And um, I actually won. Uh, I think that's my one and only tournament game victory against Anand. Uh, it was kind of a nice game, but. Um, uh, and I remember the postmortem because he was just blitzing out variations. And I think he played the entire game in 15 minutes or something like that. Um, but that was the first time we met. 
We then um, we met again at, at another World Junior Championship, and and it's possible we met some other time between there. But I remember the World Junior Championship in uh, Baguio City in the Philippines, and that was 1987. Um, uh, again, I won the U.S. Junior Championship that year. Went and played. That was the year that Vichy won, and I tied for third that year. I, I, I think I got fourth on tie breaks um, behind Surfer, if I remember correctly. Um, I played Vichy again that, that year. That was a draw. It was also a pretty good game. Um, and uh, but, but of course, by that time, Vichy was already, it was clear that Vichy was someone special, right? And, and he just had a, a, a great tournament. And it was a very strong, I mean, Ivanchuk was there, Gelfan was there. I mean, it was like a super strong tournament. Um, and, um, and we became friends and we were friendly and, you know, we would see each other every once in a while at chess tournaments and so forth. Um, but the relationship really um, intensified in 1992. It was uh, the spring of 1992. And I got one morning, I got a phone call completely out of the blue from Vichy. Um, and at that time, of course, Anand, I mean, I don't know, he was probably top six or seven in the world or something like that, right? And um, and he called me up and uh, asked me if I wanted to be um, a, an analytic, basically a second. So his analytic partner and then accompany him for a match uh, that he was playing against uh, Ivanchuk in, um, in Spain. And... Um, so I traveled out to Spain. I spent a month analyzing together with Vichy, preparing openings and so forth. And then I spent a couple of weeks with him uh, in, uh, uh, where was it? Um, uh, oh man, sorry. I'm totally blanking the name of the city. It's like um, that famous, begins with an L, that famous city. Um, anyway, uh, the one with- Linares? Linares or? Yeah, 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 thank you. Uh, I can't believe I blanked on the knowledge. Anyway, so um, uh, uh, so you know, spent time there and and uh, was his partner. And I wrote about it. I wrote a long article about this in the American Chess Journal, which was this chess journal that um, Chris Chabrid, Tim Hankey, and I mainly Chris Chabrid and, and Tim, but but I worked with them. They started and it published, I think, four issues. I'm actually pretty proud of that article. I thought it was a it was a pretty good article. I wrote about it. It was an amazing experience I had working with Anand and. Um, I mean, it, it, I went there thinking, okay, Anand is obviously really good and, and, and I'm going to learn a lot, but I, you know, is he really that good? And after a month, I mean, really probably after the first week, but after a month of working with him, it was like being in the presence of God every single day. By the way, God, but, but God incarnate, like, you know, just in a perfectly nice person, you know, right. not, not like some sort of crazy ego or something like that. Um, but just to be across the chessboard and analyze with him every day, it was so humbling because he just thinks faster and sees more all the time. Um, and, um, first of all, from, it was, a, it was a deep experience for me because first of all, I learned from that experience. It was 1992. I'd been professional for a couple of years. I was pretty good. Um, I, I still had ambitions to try to get like, you know, play for a number of years, but after working with Vichy, I just saw like, okay, maybe I could get to sort of the top 30 or 40 in the world. That seemed perfectly realistic. Maybe I'd have some good year where I could break into the top 25 if I got lucky. 
but no way was I going to get into the top 10 and, and, and no way was I going to get to Vichy's level. Like it just wasn't humanly possible. Like I just saw, okay, this isn't going to happen. So it forced me to reevaluate what I want to do with myself. Secondly, it turns out that um, working with God for over a month is really good for your chest. <laughs> right. So I, you know, after working with Vichy, like I, I won the U.S. Championship later that year, um, and in fact, after I worked with Vichy for the World Championship in 1995, I won the U.S. Championship. That, if only I could have worked with Vichy every. <laughs> right. Maybe I would have won the U.S. Championship. But um, it, so it was pretty amazing, right? Like you just learn. I just learned so much. I, you know. Not just in terms of openings or stuff, but but in terms of um, having a more creative perspective, being sharper, um, just just um, turning ideas um, more quickly. It was just it was quite an experience. Yeah, and the uh, by the way, I read the article that you mentioned about the Anand Ivanchuk, and that's another one that Chris graciously, Christopher Shapri has graciously posted online. So, listeners, I'll direct you to both the book and the article. But I mean, this idea of these two young hotshots, um, Anand and Ivanchuk, playing in this exhibition match, um, I, I checked, as you say, both were in the top 10 in the world at the time. And I, Ivanchuk, I think, was actually a couple notches higher. Um, that must have been in itself like quite fascinating. I mean, obviously, OK, you have a professional and a rooting interest working with Anand. But just as a spectator, yeah. I love the idea of seeing a match like that. Yeah, it was amazing. It was it was it was amazing on so many levels. I mean, I told you about what it was like to work with Vichy, but also um, the depth of the opening preparation was really impressive, and it was very effective opening preparation. We used a lot of the ideas. Well, I should say Vichy used a lot of the ideas in, in his match against Ivanchuk. Um, it was also um, very interesting to see the psychological aspect of it. I think that match was important for Vichy in terms of his growth. Um, and I tell the story in the article, but uh, I'll tell you the story briefly. Um, you know, he, I mean, it, the match was not for anything, right? He wasn't, it wasn't a qualifying match for anything. It was just a, an eight game match, um, uh, you know, sponsored by this guy, Rontero, the chess lover, right? So they were paid for it and so forth. Um, so Vichy um, was leading four games to two, eight game match. And then he lost game seven. I think it was the first game he lost, if I remember correctly. And, um, and he had white going into the last round. And um, so he wanted just to sort of play safely and make a draw. And I told him, absolutely, under no circumstances should you play safely and make a draw. I said, like, that you should just go for it and just try to kill this guy. Like, you've got white, just try to beat him. And, um, and my, my role, actually, the, the, the coaching aspect, the psychological, psychological aspect turned out to be pretty important because I think... I think I, I really did make a difference in, in helping him um, do that. And we had, as he was walking towards the game, um, I, I said, um, Vichy, I want you to beat him so bad that they're going to need to use dental records to identify him. <laughs> yeah. And, and he laughed. He said, okay, Pat. And as he walked off, I said, remember, Vichy, dental records. <laughs> it became an inside joke between the two of us. And so what happened was Vichy won a very nice game. Um, and I think that was important, right, because – the match itself was important for Vichy to to um, to prove to himself that he could beat Ivanchuk. And remember, at that time, there was a period of time when Ivanchuk was the number two in the. I mean, there, like it was like Kasparov, Karpov, Ivanchuk with with Karpov sort of coming down and Ivanchuk coming up. Um, and um, and Anand was obviously very good, but had not yet sort of gotten to that to that level. So it was an important match for Vichy 
to know that he could play at that level. And I think it was also very important for him to be able to be free enough to take the risk simply to play for the win, even when a draw would, would secure the match, and then to have the confidence of seeing himself win against this rival that for him was a milestone. I think it was a positive thing. So it was, and I just really like Vichy and we had a good friendship and, and worked together several times after that. And so it was just a very positive experience all around for both of us. Yeah. And of course, game one, as you annotate in the, in the journal, a very famous game. And, and to your credit, I think um, either in the journal or the book, you say this is going to be a famous game. Um, and yeah, like uh, recently, uh, well, within the past year or two, Sagar Shah, when, when Vichy turned 50, he did a quiz with a lot of the top 15 players in the world where he showed some of Anand's most famous positions. I don't know if you caught any of this online, but there were some impressive, like he showed Magnus and Magnus was able to identify almost every game and different super GMs had different levels of identification. But one of the positions was the one from uh, game one of um, where he was black against Ivanchuk and had these sort of revolutionary positional ideas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The whole, you know, Ted G takes F6 and then was in, the, in order to sort of do all these pawn levers to give himself this powerful pawn duo in the center. Yeah, I was very impressive. Yeah. Yeah, I can see how that would leave a mark in terms of uh, evaluating um, your your chess goals. Yeah, no, it, it really did, actually. It was, it was, it was, uh, I mean, I don't, not to be too uh, dramatic, but it was a life altering experience for me because um, it was tremendous fun. And as I said, it was very positive. It was very successful. Uh, you know, it, I, I, I grew from it, gained a friendship. I saw that Anon, um, would, you know, I had a positive effect on him. It was just a wonderful experience all around. And at the same time, really clarified for me, okay, like I can have some goals in chess, but I also have to recognize my limitations and, and then sort of figure out what I want to do next based on sort of a recognition of that. Um, so, yeah. And in that article, you also sort of talk about just sort of the, uh, the financial, I don't know if you would go far, go so far as to call them, call them struggles, but at least the, the reality of, um, a young talented chess player trying to make it as a professional. Yeah. Um, so certainly I'm sure did, how much did that weigh into your ultimate decision to, to de-emphasize chess? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that as absolutely the financial as well as the lifestyle. I mean, you know, I'm married. Um, happily married, two kids. Um, and, you know, there was a period of my, I don't travel so much anymore. Maybe I'll travel. Well, at least none of us do now, but uh, you know, I, I, I may travel again at some point. But there was a period in my life um, when I was traveling quite a lot. But, you know, traveling quite a lot meant, okay, I'm, I'm going to go uh, somewhere in the United States for several days. So maybe I'll go on a, a trip to Europe for a week or, you know, I do that several times a year. Um, I would call that sort of normal business travel. Whereas, of course, for chess, um, you know, if you're really ambitious um, and you're in your prime, like you might have to spend months um, on the road if you live in the United States. Um, and, you know, so the lifestyle aspect, but the financial aspect as well, um, it's it's very hard. It's hard enough just to make a decent living at chess. And, and I think, by the way, it's gotten better now with the Internet. Um, but I think it was a lot harder um, back, back in my day. Um, but also... Um, you know, the thing is, you have to think in terms of your lifetime, right? Like you might be able to make a decent living during your prime years. But if if you do that during your prime years, let's say until your mid 40s, which which back then seemed like impossibly long ago and a long right. 
should <laughs> now I, I yearn for. And, um, you know, if you hit your late 40s and you've got maybe sort of another 20 plus years where you want to be, you know, sort of earning and, and so on and so forth and your chess abilities are declining. Look, it's like any sport, right? Like you're you, you have a you have a career, you have sort of a prime that lasts a certain period of time. And then you have to sort of, um, you know, try to build something you can earn off, either either make enough at that point or or build something you can earn off from them. And I think in chess, it's quite hard. And what happens for a lot of chess players is it becomes uh, teaching, right? Yeah. Sort of the main thing. And that's a grind, especially since, like, for the most part, the money in teaching is not, you know, not you're not teaching the, the budding young talents. You're teaching young kids and stuff like that. So it's sort of like half teaching chess, half babysitting. And that, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just like you've got to know that that's what you're that's sort of the, the arc that you're looking at. Um, so I think it's I think it's tough in chess. If you compare it to, you know, if you compare it to something like tennis, for example, you know, let's say you're not, you know, you're not number one or, you know, you're not Federer or whatever. You're just sort of top hundred in the world. You know, you'll make a decent living on the tennis circuit. But then you also will be able to make a perfectly good living and a good lifestyle at the um, at the tennis clubs, you know, sort of teaching and being sort of the, the, the club professional and things like that. Well, something similar exists in chess, but just at a much lower level. And that lower level just makes it a hard career to embark on. But of course, when you're in your teens, it's hard to think like that, right? You're just thinking, right. I want to gain another 50 rating points and I want to win the next tournament. Yeah. I mean, I do think it's gotten significantly better. I think it's approaching the level of a sort of retired tennis pro, I think now for a lot of people that yeah. just in my opinion, but yeah. your, right. your, your overall point is still quite strong. And actually I, I had mentioned when I interviewed uh, your friend, I am Stuart Rachel's that you had similar perspective, even in that documentary, excuse me, documentary, American Grandmaster. Yeah, yeah, I, don't, yeah. I don't know how old you were for that, but you spoke similarly about sort of evaluating chess as a career choice. Documentary about the uh, Kasparov match? Yeah, the Kasparov simul, yeah. That was fun. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I, th I my observation is that things have gotten much better uh, for online. And by the way, I think there's a lot of potential for chess uh, because of computers and online, which I hope we'll get a chance to talk about later. But, but, but just sort of purely the ability to teach um, online, um, the lifestyle is much better. You're able to reach more people. I, I think that's right. Like, you know, and, and you can carve out a perfectly decent lifestyle and living doing that. Yeah, but nonetheless, I mean, when you're when you're young and you're setting a career path, I mean, you're not going to have like, especially here in the United States, where you've got to worry about fun stuff like health insurance. Um, yeah. You're not you're never going to have that. So well, that was a big deal. Um, you know, of course, now with the Affordable Care Act, for anybody who's listening outside the United States, like the United States has joined the rest of the modern world, and and pre-existing conditions can no longer prohibit you from being covered. But I um I actually had um. I had a, a, a leaky heart valve, which was diagnosed uh, 1990 or something like that. Um, and I eventually had my atrial, my, my, my aortic, excuse me, my, my aortic valve replaced in, uh, uh, what was it, six years ago, six and a half years ago, 2013. Um, all went very well. So um, uh, not, I can't say I recommend heart surgery to anybody, but right. it all went fine. Um, but um, 
you know, I have not ever had a problem having health insurance since I entered the workforce. But when I was a professional chess player, um, there were literally a couple of years when I did not have health insurance because I could not get health insurance. I mean, it's just insanity, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, so yeah, things like that actually do enter it into it. Yeah. Well, bringing it back to the the chess board experiences, you've told us um, a lot of the Vichy stories, but I still I have to hear a little perspective on the '95 match itself. I mean, in New York City, fa- you know, famous famous historic chess match, Anand being the young upstart taking on another god, Kasparov. So, what was it like being part of that team? Well, it was pretty intense. Uh, so we had spent several months in Spain. Um, so we being. Um, uh, Ubalava, who's a, um, a, a grandmaster um, and um, not quite at the same level in terms of uh, some of the other people on, on the team, but um, a good grandmaster and an excellent uh, trainer and coach for Vichy, and they had a long um, uh, relationship. Um, and then uh, Jonathan Spielman, Arthur Yusupov, and myself. Um, so that was a that was, you know, being able to work with with um, Spielman and Supov was itself um, quite an honor. Um, and we worked together for I think three months in Spain. Um, did a lot of good work, um, and then um, uh, sort of had a month or so in between, um, and then trooped off to New York and worked together in New York. I think I, if memory, I think we arrived like a week or so ahead of time. Um, at the uh, World Trade Center, you know, so uh, I forget whether it was tower number one or number two, but <laughs> but yeah, we were at the World Trade Center. That's where the match was played. And um, it was quite an experience. And it was, um, it, it was, you know, Vichy, of course, at that point had plenty of professional experience and so forth, but had not had the world championship level experience, right? So it does bring a different level of pressure with it. Um, and also, definitely have to tip my hat to Gary in terms of the chess preparation. Um, the, the, the way that match was, the first 10 games were very even. The first eight games were draws. There were some very interesting draws in there. And Vichy actually had the upper hand a few times. Um, but then um, uh, Vichy, uh, if, I believe it was Vichy who drew first blood. He won the ninth game. Really nice uh, classical Scheveningen, uh, um, you know, so e, the, the night or if we go Bishop E2 and, and Gary won E6 and so forth, that we had prepared that specially. Um, Vichy, by the way, had had overlooked a clear win in game three. So it was, and, you know, so we had a decent position game one, had a clear win in game three he didn't ex- execute on. Five and seven didn't really go much of anywhere. And then game nine, he really, he really um, got um, Gary. Then Gary came back in game 10, just blew him out of the water um, in a prepared uh, line in the um, open uh, Rue Lopez, which Vichy had prepared. Um, but but Gary's preparation was excellent. Then game 11 was like this critical game, not just in terms of the result, but also the psychology. So Gary um, played the Dragon Sicilian. And to my knowledge, Gary never played the Dragon Sicilian after this match, maybe he played it somewhere, but I think this was like the one time he and he had prepared it specially, and he had clearly seen that Vichy's preparation for the for the dragon had this hole in it where 
And it was a line that Vishy and I had both been playing actually with, with some real success. But Gary had identified, actually this had been known for decades that black had a way of equalizing, but it had sort of been lost to the sands of time. And Gary you know, resuscitated it and, and, and equalized out of the opening. But he didn't like completely equalize. And he offered Vichy a draw and Vichy turned it down um, because he still had a slight edge. Very slight, but still something to play for. And then there was just this terrible double blunder where um, um, in this relatively equal end game, but still Vichy had the slight advantage, Gary blundered a pawn. And it didn't require much to see it. And if Vichy had executed correctly, he would have had a pawn up end game, which I analyze in the book. And I think it was drawn with best play, but for sure gave some practical chances. And instead, Vichy blundered in return and allowed a basic combination, um, which, which Gary saw, and then that was the end of the game. And the result was kind of shattering um, for Vichy. Um, he, he held a draw with Black in the next game, in game 12, in a tough opening, but, but fought very hard and held the draw. And then we had all sort of like done some done some work and we sort of split the team up and and I don't this I don't mean to sort of ascribe whatever responsibility one way or the other. It's just a fact of the matter. Like I was working on one line and the rest of the team was working on sort of the main line. Um, and so I was sort of put to work on this auxiliary auxiliary line with Castle's Queen side instead of Bishop C4 in the in the um, in the main line. Um, that Vichy never ended up playing. And so Vichy played this sideline uh, that they had decided like would be a way for him to try to get a small edge. Um, he played the sideline and he didn't play it terribly well. And he got sort of, uh, you know, it was equal and then he was worse and then he was much worse and then it was over. Hmm. And, um, and I think like that was just, uh, just to lose with white in that way was just ugly. Um, and then with black, he shook it up. He, uh, at that point, we played. The, he played the Scandinavian. We had prepared this. John and Spielman and I, in particular, had worked together to help prepare that for Vichy. Um, e4, d5. He takes d5. Queen takes d5. Right. Knight c3. Queen a5. That way. These days they go queen d6 more, but you know, play queen a5. And he actually got a slight edge with black fairly quickly out of the opening, but he burned a lot of time. And even though he had a slight edge, um, he burned a lot of time. And in time trouble, he lost his edge, and then the game fell apart, and then he lost. And so in the space of four games, like game 11, 12, 13, 14, he went from having a real edge that he could have pressed in game 11 to a loss, to a, a tough draw, a loss that was just really ugly. And then in game 14, he could have, again, again he had real chances with Black, but it just sort of, he just lost the thread and fell apart. And so it was really this very quick psychological unraveling, which I write about in the book. And, um, and to Vichy, and I did not know at the time whether Vichy was really going to be able to grow through that and come out of it. And, and I was coming to the end of my professional career. You know, I was already back at, at school. I was at Harvard. I took a semester off to do all this stuff. Um, but, you know, once I finished writing the book and I, I played the U.S. championship again and, and so forth, and I won, but like afterwards, 
I, I went back to school and I was already sort of towards the end of my professional chess playing art. And so I was in the book, I was, and I knew that when I was writing the book. And so I didn't know whether Vichy was going to be able to grow through it. To his great credit, he really did. Um, and it's, it's quite interesting how it took him another dozen years before he finally was able to sort of consolidate the world championship title, decisively um, beat Kramnik who himself had beaten Kasparov some years before that, right, in 2001, and then hold the title, defend the title successfully several more times before, of course, finally losing to Carlson. So he had a tremendously successful career and had the fortitude, which I was always very proud of him for, had the fortitude to grow through that very, very painful period, that just that compressed four games where he just really cracked and knew that he cracked and had to put himself back together afterwards. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing living history you're telling. Yeah. And we had a, a question from a supporter of the podcast, Jan Schmidt, that I think you mostly just answered. He 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 said, does he think that Anon missed a real chance to dethrone Kasparov in 95? Or did Anon simply make too many unforced errors, especially of a psychological nature? Or was the time not yet ripe for him to be world championship? Yeah. Uh, to be world champion, sorry. Number two, probably number three. I think, you know, people always, it's interesting how there were stylistic matchups in chess and i think gary was always a tough opponent for vichy um and you know i could speculate why but i think just empirically gary was just always a tough opponent whereas kramnik was not a tough opponent for vichy i mean obviously very good player but but not sort of a tough opponent the same way but kramnik was a very tough opponent for kasparov um, and and I think like in Gary's mind, you know, he somehow expected that Kramnik was going to be the one to beat him. Um, but but Gary never believed that Vichy was going to be the one to beat him. And he was right. And then and then Vichy beat Kramnik. So it's funny how <laughs> full circle. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and Kramnik, of course, I somehow this had escaped my attention previously. But Kramnik was helping Kasparov with that match, right? Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Such a so uh, so so tight knit at the top, even though there might be interpersonal personal dynamics where everyone's not best friends. I mean, there's still it's such a small circle. Yeah, I mean, look, I, there's very few people who can when you're at that level to find someone to work with. I mean, I mean look, Arthur Yusupov and John Spielman are obviously great players. I mean, great players, and. They had, I know, because I talked to him about it, they had the same experience with Fishy that I did, right? Of just like, oh my God, I'm in the presence of the mind of God, right? Well, if you're if you're God, you know, humans get tiring after a while. <laughs> right. Probably want to work with another God, and there's only a small handful of them. So, you know. <laughs> That's amazing. Okay, well, yeah, it's awesome. I mean, I could I could hear you tell Vichy stories forever, but I want to hear about your own career as well, Patrick. So, uh, when you say you think about chess every day, which is uh, nice to hear, what about how often do you think about your career? Think about some game you played or like a, a highlight winning, whether it be the junior or the U.S. championship. How often do you reflect on those achievements? Some, I mean, it's you know, I I don't go around thinking about my best games every day. Um, you know, I'd say it's it's there, and I'm proud of it, and I'm happy for it. Um, but I I tend to think forward as opposed to back, and so I'm I'm think 
I'm more immersed in the chess that's happening today. Uh, that's that's what that's what really sort of grabs me. But you know, every so often I'll go through an old game that I played that I enjoyed playing. So I'm definitely. Do you turn on an engine when you do that? No, um, no. And actually, one of the great tragedies of my life is I had all my games and my analysis on an old machine that blew up uh, and I lost it. So um, I still have my shoebox and I still have a lot of those games, but, but all the work that I put in while I was a professional, you know, annotating my own games, all the opening books that I built, all that stuff is lost. And it's just sad, but yeah, it hurts just to hear it. Yeah. It hurts to Brutal. talk. <laughs> Um, well, well, speaking of engines, I want to hear more because you gave this amazing talk and not that long ago, actually, at St. Louis Chess Club um, about chess and AI. So that's what I'd like to ask you about. But first, Patrick, I'd like to take a break and hear from our friends at, at Chessable. Know your classics. Later in this interview, you'll hear Grandmaster Patrick Wolf talk about how he became a GM by studying the former world champions. There's lots of ways to study, but one of the most efficient ways to do so is on Chessable using their Move Trainer technology. It tests you and helps you assimilate the patterns. You can begin with inexpensive courses like Chess Immortals, Wilhelm Steinitz, or Strategy Training, Bobby Fischer. There's even a new course on his end gameplay coming out by Magnus Carlsen himself. Whatever you choose to study in chess, chessable.com can help you out, and their Move Trainer technology can help you remember. And we're back. So, Patrick, you gave this talk at St. Louis Chess Club about chess and AI. And I mean, you're you're a brilliant guy, so I, maybe I shouldn't have been so surprised. But the the level of knowledge about how chess computers work really impressed me. What's what's your background? Is that just out of personal interest, or did you prepare that talk? What's the story there? Oh, thank you. I um, so I I got fascinated by AI um, basically when Alpha Zero appeared. Right. Um, I mean, I, I knew about AlphaGo and I, I understood from a, you know, sort of a general business and sort of general interest perspective that AI was a big deal and so forth. But, but I think like many people, when I saw those Alpha Zero games against Stockfish, I, it was just one of those moments. I said, all right, something's happening here. I need to understand what the hell is going on. Right. Like, what, what? what produced these games um and i was going to write a book on um ai I actually worked together with chris uh, shabri for um for a month and a half I, I read a number of books on ai um i must have written i don't know 20 pages of notes or something i ended up giving a talk at a goldman sachs conference um that i got you know about about alpha zero and, and whatever um and um you know, obviously the book never happened and, and so forth, but uh, but I learned a lot um, and um, and it, it it spurred me to do some other things that um, that we'll see. I ended up I spent a while um, contemplating um, doing something in chess in terms of a chess business um, and decided after a while um, uh, you know, not to focus on that and in, and instead took it in a different direction. I'm working with a with a couple friends and we'll see if it on an investing um, aspect, and we'll see. We're so we've been doing this for four or five months, and we'll see where it goes. Um, but the long story short is, yeah, I, I spent some time uh, really teaching myself 
about AI. And in the, um, you know, uh, learn to play chess like a boss, right? The successor book to um, the Complete Idiot's Guide series. The one big new piece that I did for that book was I thoroughly updated the, the, the chapter on computers and chess, and I inserted an entire segment on AI um, and how AI works and, and how it works for chess and so on and so forth. Because I think it's uh, I, I think it's fascinating. I think it's important. So yeah, so, yeah, I, it really is. And you you do a really good job, sort of explaining how the different uh, programs work. The the sort of more traditional engines as com as compared to to the neural networks. Um, so what do you think is uh, what do you think is next for these computers? Are they just going to keep getting stronger and stronger, or are they finally approaching a ceiling? Well, I have no idea. Um, it's interesting, you know. One of the things I discovered when I wrote the chapter on the um, on the uh, you know learn to play chess like a boss um, is that um, the the the, cha the chapter on computers and chess. It turns out that every decade, computers have gotten about uh, four hundred Elo points stronger. And I mean, it's it's really weird. Like, I don't know why that should be the case, um, but you can pretty much draw a line back and, and you know, if we can just talk it through for a minute. This will make sense. So there, the, you remember David Levy? I, mm -hmm. remember. <laughs> I remember, unfortunately, because I'm that old, but, but, but you probably know that David Levy played this match against a computer. He made this bet that no computer would be able to beat him after a certain period of time. And he was right. And he played this match. And, um, you know, and I think sort of the best estimate, uh, and I think he played that match, if memory serves me right, in 1978. And, um, you know, I think, like, people estimated that the computer was probably 1900, 2000 level. This is pretty good, actually, for 1978, right? Um, you know, David Levy won, but, but the match wasn't a joke, right? Like, they were real games, but, you know, David Levy won because he was an international master. All right, so that's 1978, right? So the the um, before there was deep blue, uh, there was uh, deep thought, right? And deep thought, um, I remember deep thought playing in uh, this uh, uh, open tournament in 1988, I think, and um, uh, losing a famous game to Walter Brown, um, but beating um, Alex Fishbein. Um, and uh, by the way, the, the game against, just apropos of nothing, but it's really funny, in the game against Alex Fishbein, it got down to a rook and bishop versus rook end game, the computer having the rook and bishop. And um, at some, you could you could watch like the terminal, like what it was, what like what it thought of the position. And at some point um, it saw like force mate. Um, and when it, when it saw force mate, it said search terminated on the <laughs> screen. <laughs> <laughs> Which was a really funny, like, uh, like metaphor. But anyway, so like, you know, some deep thought in, um, in like the late 1980s, you know, probably about 2400, roughly speaking. Well, Deep Blue comes along, like, you know, roughly 10 years later, right, against Gary Kasparov. And I think people would generally agree that Kasparov didn't play his best in that match, and in the match he lost, I mean, right. And so probably. You know, probably a little bit weaker than Gary, 
Um, but, you know, maybe at that point, the computer had sort of a 2750-ish rating by the end of the decade, probably 2800. Well, 10 years late, so that's like the end of the 1990s, right? So at the end of the 2000s, you know, by that time, computers are pretty decisively better than human beings, right? You've got like Hydra that like played this match against Michael Adams and crushed him six ways to Sunday and and uh, all the, you know, the um, uh, Fritz was beating um, uh, Kramnik and stuff like that, right? Um, you know, so by the end of last decade, probably sort of like 3,200. And I think this decade, what we're seeing, I mean, probably already um, Stockfish is sort of like 34, 3,500, and then Alpha Zero, I, I think they were estimating this a couple years ago, maybe Alpha Zero is sort of like 3,600. So weirdly, it does seem like computers have been getting roughly 400 ELO points stronger every decade. Now, does that have to stop? I guess eventually it has to stop. <laughs> you would think, yeah. I don't know, though. I just don't know. <laughs> And I don't know whether anybody knows. I mean, I don't know even know how you would how you would try to extrapolate that. Like, but they're getting better. Um, I don't think there's any reason to think that the AI algorithms have been maxed out. Um, there's still a lot that you could feed into those, um, and the hardware keeps getting better. I don't know, man. <laughs> And I and I know you've also you've mentioned you've got some opinions about how chess should be presented. And of course, I do feel like the chess world has made some strides. And I saw in my research, I saw you did a little quick hitter interview with uh, Maurice Ashley about six, seven years ago right. um, when you were at the St. Louis Chess Club. Um, and you actually mentioned that even back then you were saying that you felt like there were there was a paradigm shift coming in terms of how chess could be presented. So I was curious. uh has any of what you envisioned happened? And, and if not, or if so, like what, what do you think the future has in store? Um, yeah, that interview was five years ago. I remember that at the, um, in, uh, in St. Louis. Um, so I would say, no, I don't think it's happened yet. And I think partly it hasn't happened because I think the computers aren't quite good enough Partly it hasn't happened because um, it would require a concerted effort to do it. And um, I think the two logical companies to do this are either chess.com or chess24. Um, and I'd be happy to talk with either one of them if they're interested. But um, he here's what I think is the, the future. Um, we are now close to the point, maybe not quite, but we'll get there soon, where basically a computer can look at a chess position and pretty much know what the best move is pretty quickly. Um, now, you know, it may change its views um, over, like, you know, if you give it a few minutes, it may change its views, so forth. But already, I think the computers are just so much better than the best humans in the world that you can pretty much take any chess position and feed it to, you know, alpha zero, whatnot. And um, it will just know in 30 seconds or a minute what should happen. And just whatever Magnus Carlsen or anybody else, you know, sort of thinks about for a long time, like you're just sort of approaching what the computer sees very quickly. And if we're not there yet, 
we'll be there very soon, right? When we get to that point, it then becomes possible to explain the game at a wholly different level. If you watch chess games now, the way they're presented, it basically looks like like people are just trying to replicate the 1980s. Like basically it's it's Marie Ashley and Yasser Sarwan or Peter Fiddler or someone like that. All great guys, all do this really well, but basically they're just sort of riffing at the top of their heads. Oh, maybe this is a good move. Oh, maybe this is a good move. Um, and you know, I remember the time when this and that. It's it's and meanwhile, you're just waiting for the game to be played. You're just sort of like waiting for the next move to happen. So that the game remains a mystery that is being played out and will not be understood until the next day. Well, that's a very sort of 20th century way of thinking about a chess game, right? There's no reason why it needs to be like that. You could present a game in such a way that people know what the right moves are. And now you can go deeper because now you can do not only what is the right move, but what is the likelihood of um, the player at the board finding the right move or playing each given move? And what is the likely outcome of the game? You see where I'm going with this, where, where you, the spectator, can be engaged in the game through the help of the computer in a completely different way. Now it's not some mystery that's unfolding before you, but now you have knowledge about what could happen and should happen and is likely to happen, that you have this sort of privileged knowledge and the people at the board are toiling away to just try to, try to work their way up to be, to, to be as close as possible to as good as what you already know is possible. Once you have that, not only can you follow the game in a, in a wholly different way, you can also start to wager. You can start to bet, right? And so now you can be playing with other people following the game to wager on what's happening in this mystery that's being, that you already have sort of solved for you. And now you're, you're sort of doing these higher order like, oh, well, I think Magnus Carlsen is 70% likely to win this game, so I'm willing to bet $100 in order to get you know, $130 back or something like that. And someone said, no, no, I think this or that. I mean, you can, you can sort of play on top of the game in all sorts of ways enabled by the computer. Now, this would take a lot of work. This is what I spent some time trying to develop and, and decided after a while you know, it was, it was too hard and, and uh, I had other things to, to work on. But I'm, I'm convinced that there is a, a real potential to gamify chess in this way. And the companies that, that should be doing it are either Chess24 or Chess.com because they've got, um, they've got the data set to do it. They've got the user base. Um, I think you could really do some exciting and interesting things with it. But it's going to take, take the vision. It's going to take a commitment to it. Um, and also... It's possible we're not there yet. It may, it may be that we're still sort of a few years away, but I don't think we're more than a few years away if we are. And I think it's quite possible we're there. I think it would just take dedicated programmers and some upfront investment 
Like I think it would it would require a Silicon Valley type startup structure to do it, but not a crazy amount. I think it's very doable. And I think if you did it, not only could you do it for chess, I think you could do it for other games. I think you could create a really fascinating uh, new um, form of entertainment here. Interesting. Yeah. And of course, a live sports betting, everyone talks about it's um, increased primacy. And I know they've got the real time ag- algorithms now. It's a lot of it here in the States is is comes down to uh, the legality in different places. Yeah. And, and again, it's, it's all shifting in one direction. There's going to be like this is just happening more and more. Um, so, yeah, I think that I thought about this a lot during the 1990s. Like, why is chess have such a problem sort of reaching the same level as other sports? And I think that one of the reasons, I think that in some sense, the fundamental reason is, I don't know, like, what's your favorite sport? What do you like? I like uh, the NBA and baseball. Okay, there you go. So NBA, baseball. So you don't have, you, you can't shoot a free throw. You can't dunk the ball. You can't do what LeBron James or anybody else can do. You can't hit, you can't throw a fastball, hit a fastball the way they can do it in Major League Baseball. But you can appreciate it because you know what needs to happen. And you, if you're into it, you can know what the statistics are. So you can know what's likely to happen. You can do fantasy sports on top of that. You can bet on it. You have all of the ability to do it because your ability to anticipate and understand is in no way tied to your ability to play. And that's the problem with chess. Ah, that's a good insight, yeah. The problem with chess is that you, that those abilities to do those things are so intimately tied to your ability to actually play. But what computers do is they allow us to sort of lift that out, right? And so it, it takes work. Like, like this isn't easy. Like this would take concerted effort. But I am thoroughly, fundamentally convinced that this is now doable with computers. And someone someday is going to do this. And, you know, maybe in four or five years, I'll come back to it and, and, and I'll try to do it. I'd love to work with somebody if somebody's interested in because I've thought about this a lot. And, and, and I have some some ideas about what it would take to, to make this happen, not just in terms of what needs to happen, but how you bring the resources together. I'm convinced that there's a real opportunity there, but but it but it needs to happen. And hopefully eventually it will. Well, I appreciate that you're willing to share the idea that you're not just uh, hiding your intellectual property. <laughs> well, I mean, anybody can have an idea. You have to actually make it make it um, happen. But I'd love to see it happen. Like I said, I'd love to work with someone if they're if, if anyone's listening to this. I'd, I'd love to work with someone to make it happen because I think it's a real opportunity. OK, so if anyone wants to reach Patrick, I don't know if you'll share your info, but if not, they can go through me and I'll uh, I'll make sure that uh, my, email, my email address is Patrick at GrandmasterCap.com. So OK. You can you can repeat that. That's that's fine. Great, yeah, and I'll I'll put that in the show notes as well. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, I do feel like they're like uh, chess.com was just saying on Twitter the other day. They be, like through the there's one of these sites that ranks the most visited websites. They cracked the top 300 in the world, wow. and their tra- and their traffic has something like doubled during the the coronavirus. So I do feel like they're uh, the sites chess24 and chess.com are just getting better and better at presenting 
chess as a product, but I see what you're saying about how you could you could raise the level of engagement significantly. And obviously people love to bet. And that's something that my friend Greg Shahadi, like he he's designing the fantasy. They are doing fantasy, especially on chess 24 right now. And Greg's the one designing the pools. And I do think yeah. that helps. But as you say, that might be just the tip of the iceberg. Oh, I think there's just such tremendous potential. And, and if you look at the way computers are used to present chess, you can just see like it's it's decades behind the presentation is decades behind what the technology enables right it's just waiting the potential is waiting to be unlocked and also by the way like i have no idea how much better computers get at chess but i'll stake everything the computers keep do getting better at chess right like we know which way that curve is going so you're you're hopping on board something that's trending um in all the right ways uh, yeah, that's that's a really good point. It'll it'll be interesting to see. So when did this idea first occur to you? When did you start to think about it? Um, I think I really started. I mean, like I said, I've been thinking a lot about this since the 1990s. I mean, there was a time when I was sort of in the circle of, of people that Gary Kasparov had who were trying to professionalize chess. I mean, I mean, I, I remember the Grandmasters Association. I definitely remember the Professional Chess Association and all of that stuff. So I thought about it a lot, and uh, you know the the um, Intel is a sponsor of the World Championship match with uh, Kasparov Anand. Um, they actually ended up producing like a one hour, I think, ESPN show if I remember correctly. But again, like this was all like basically trying to take like soccer and put it on and 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 treat chess like soccer and put it on TV. It didn't, never worked. And um, so I thought about this stuff a lot during the 1990s, but I never had I never had this thought because, you know, computers weren't at that level. I think it was just be, being here in Silicon Valley enmeshed in this world. Um, I, I forget when, but like somehow over the subsequent 20 years, like these sort of wheels were turning. Um, and uh, I had this thought when I was, you know, this interview with Maurice Ashley in, in St. Louis. And then uh, like two years ago, it sort of like clicked. I was like, yeah, you know, I bet you could really do this. And like I said, I spent several months really sort of exploring it. But um, uh, but yeah, so I, I think the potential's there. That's kind of how the evolution was for me. Okay. And when you talk to your your friends and colleagues around Silicon Valley and and in the finance world, what is what is their perception of chess, just generally and as a business entity? Um, well, I think the general perception of chess, no big surprise, right, is uh, like people. People think if you're really good at chess, you must be really smart. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I don't try to disabuse people. <laughs> right. <laughs> you, but, you know, that's sort of the general view. Um, I think people think chess is really neat. Um, there's a lot of interest, again, no surprise to you, a lot of interest in kids learning chess because, this, you know, it's prestigious. And, and you know, if, if, if my son or daughter learns to play chess well, it gives them a leg up in the world somehow. I don't know. But um, I think there's sort of that idea. Um, so I think like chess has that very positive halo around it. And there's a lot of people who play chess and just like chess, you know? So I think there's, there's definitely that, um, certainly here in San Francisco and Silicon Valley, there's definitely, you know, as, as around New York, as around these very other places, there's plenty of people who play chess. Um, I think as a business, um, you know, that famous joke, um, a horse that can count to 10 is a remarkable horse, but not a remarkable mathematician. 
I do not. <laughs> yeah, well, it's the same sort of thing with chess, right? I mean, like, you know, you if if you create a chess a business out, out of chess, like, you know, you've done something remarkable for chess, but not necessarily something remarkable for business. Um, so you know, I think like as a business, um, people are interested in chess as a game. Let me put it. Yeah. Um, but you know, I think there's a lot of potential, and I think there's a lot of I think um chess as sort of the example par excellence, but all these mind games, I think the computers and the internet are just so good for them. And I think we're still just scratching the surface of what we can do from an entertainment perspective. Um, and you know, chess has a, a very rich history and it's a great game, it's, you know, as we all know. So, so there's a lot there. Okay. And a sort of related question from a friend of the show who's actually been on the show. I am Kari Christensen, um, who is around your age. And he wrote in to, to say, he said, having Patrick as a guest brings me down memory lane as I met him in London 1986 in connection with the world championship match, Karpa versus Kasparov number three. I uh, believe he also played in some of the tournaments arranged alongside the match. We discussed and analyzed some interesting lines in the Nidorf. Some openings seem to be of eternal interest. Yeah. And then he says, his question is, considering your impressive career in the finance world, which of the skills, if any, that you developed as a chess player have helped you in your career? You know, it's so I so one way to answer this, and this, this will sound slightly snarky, but I think it's an important point to make, which is, um, you know, if, if you want to get good at something, you should do that thing, right? So um, nobody thinks that the best way to become a great basketball player is first get really good at hockey and then use those transferable skills, right? Like, like the way to get really good at basketball is to play basketball, right? The way to get really good at, you know, music is to do music. So it, it's always funny to me to think that some people think like, oh, well, you got really good at chess, so that must mean you're really good at <laughs> right, right? Eh, I don't know. It doesn't really work that way. Um, but somehow this is, I think, like what people think. Having said that, I do think that chess is good for training um, habits of mind um, and intellectual um, sort of frameworks. And I would say, for me, one of the most important things that I took from chess um, was uh, sort of the 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 internalization of rigorous feedback loops i mean the thing about chess as we know you know that famous Lasker quote right you know lies and hypocrisies don't mm -hmm. support. um i mean it's just true right like i i could not begin to tell you how much bullshit there is in the world of finance right like um and there's there's no end of it in the world of business and frankly, in most of the world, but in chess, there is no BS, right? Like not over the chessboard anyway. And um, and to to be enmeshed in that world and to almost sort of purify your ego through the experience of this rapid, honest, omnipresent feedback loop where the only way to improve is to root out your errors to search for truth to search for excellence and and just sort of to constantly um, stretch yourself i think that's a very positive thing and i think you can learn that obviously anywhere but i think chess is particularly good for it because it is so pure right like there's no referees 
there's no dice it's, it's just all there um over the board um so i i i took that from it um and i think clearly there is the marriage of the sort of rigorously logical with the kind of um creative and fantasy um that chess brings um again i think you can get that in a lot of places but i think chess is very good for that mm -hmm. and of course it professionally uh chess is part of the way that you became like you became friends with peter thiel in part due to chess right yeah so that's true that's true um i mean it's been it's been some time since i've spoken with peter but but we had a you know for a period we had a long um business relationship um and um yeah we met through just our common interest in chess way back in 1999 or 2000 yeah so i guess it can open some doors professionally just in terms of the network you develop too although there aren't that many peter thiel's running around yeah no that for sure is true i mean again i think there's a lot of people who like chess um this i mean there's lots of people in the new york finance world there's lots of people in uh you know finance world generally and then here in in san francisco and silicon valley and in, in the technology world um again i think you know there are lots of things you can do to um sort of you know there are lots of networks to tap into but chess certainly has its own and and um and you know it's it's, it's been good from that perspective yeah and you did one or two like uh blindfold chess things at uh the famed berkshire hathaway warren buffett and uh, charlie no, Munger. 15, actually uh, 15 of them you did it 15 years straight wow I did 15 years. I think I actually there was one year that I was slated to do it, but I couldn't go because my wife's father had passed away. So I was I had to go to his um, funeral. But other than that, from 1999 to 2004, uh, and you know you can you can um, read any one of uh, Warren Buffett's letters to the shareholders back in those years. Uh, sorry, 1999 to 2014. Okay, 15 years. You can, like I said, you can read the letters of the shareholder, and uh, and and he says something. Patrick Wolf will be playing all commerce blindfold, so forth. So it it morphed into a um, six-player simultaneous blindfold exhibition. Um, my first year was 1999. My last year was 2014. Um, I won most of my games. I you know I I probably lost out of six times 50. Well, six times, uh, six times 14, I should say, as opposed to 15. So let's call it 84 blindfold games. I probably lost, I don't know, four or five of them or something like that. My typical result would be sort of four wins and two draws or, um, you know, sort of four wins and a loss and a draw, or five wins and a draw, or something like that. Um, again, some decent, I mean, some of them were, were beginner level, you know, maybe like sort of D players or C players, but, but some of them, you know, were A players or experts and masters. So it was pretty, that was fun um it was tiring it was it was it's i remember like i would every time i would finish like i would just sort of like be bathed in sweat and i was <laughs> working very hard um and i finally stopped in 2014 because i i wanted to stop before i went off the cliff right I, I come one year and you know lose four games or something um and it's, it's actually i mean obviously it wouldn't be fun for me but but it, it actually i think wouldn't be fun for the spectators either like i think what's most fun for the spectators is if you win most of the games, but like lose or draw one or two of them, right? Because then they know that like, oh, he's really good, but someone got him. Like that's somehow like like the best. And of course, from my perspective, winning all of them is the best outcome. Um, but I don't think from anybody's perspective, my coming in and losing four or five of them would be a good outcome. And uh, you know, it gets 
gets hard as your as your fluid intelligence starts. Uh, <laughs> yeah, especially with, without chess being like you know, it's not your your primary yeah, yeah, location yeah. these days. So, were you training for those matches? Would you try to ramp it up? as the meeting approached? No, not really. I mean, I, I'd had enough experience at that point that I felt confident I could just go in and, and do it. Do you have any sort of blindfold tips you could give for um, for people who kind of struggle visualizing the board? Um, well, so, so I mean, Grandmaster uh, uh, Michael Wilder was the first one to tell me, because he, he had done like a blindfold exhibition. I asked him, this is like, 1989, I think we were talking about it. And I asked him how hard it was. He said, you know, like if you just practice a little bit, it turns out not to be that bad. And, um, but you know, I think these are grandmasters speaking to each other. So my guess is probably any grandmaster with a little bit of practice could play a number of games blindfolded. Um, I can't honestly say that I did any particular training or anything like that. I would say it was just, you know, I mean, I've got chest white noise going on in my brain. Right. right. For better or for worse, my neurons have been rewired to have like chest moves flowing through them. So it was just sort of like concentrating and practicing a bit. Um, and I practiced with a fewer number of people before I went out to Omaha to do the, you know, the six, the six game uh, exhibition. And, and did you ever play Warren Buffett or Charlie Munger themselves? Or never played them chess. It's funny. I wrote a letter to Warren offering to come out and and I offering to teach him chess uh, when I wrote when I published my book, The Complete Eighties Guide to Chess. And in classic Warren Buffett for, uh, uh, sort of style, he wrote back to me and said, "Oh no, you know I I'm too old to learn new tricks. Like you know I I know bridge is my game, but we'd love to have you come out and play." So he, you know, as he does with everybody, he's sort of roped me in to, you know, be, <laughs> uh, be part of his menagerie. Um, so I met Warren, and we've corresponded um, a few times over the last some years, not just you know, about various things, about business and 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 so forth, um, but um, but never actually played him a, a, a game of chess. Okay, and what about any any other sort of uh, household names that you've come across in your life uh, and played chess with? Um, well, I mean, Ken Rogoff is kind of a household name. He's obviously, uh, he's very good. He doesn't count. <laughs> Another grandmaster doesn't uh, count. <laughs> also, also a very, very good grandmaster in his day. Um, gee, I don't know. I mean, obviously Peter Thiel. Um, right. uh, um, I don't know. I don't, I don't have good famous person chess game stories. Um, I, yeah, sorry. That's okay. That's okay. You've given plenty of good insight and stories. Um, one other thing, Patrick, before before we let you go, um, you also talked in um, in one of the things I read. I believe it was your your book in the introduction to the book of the um, Kasparov Anon match. You talked about uh, you know you told the story of learning to play chess when you were a young boy, but then being introduced to my sixty memorable games at the age of eight. Yeah. And I recently, along with my friend Donnie Ariel, did a podcast talking about that book. So I just wanted to get your firsthand perspective of what it was like to come across that book, and if you have any other books that were equally formative for you, I'd love to to hear you discuss them. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, well, I don't think any other book was as formative as my sixty memorable games. I mean, I. I was given that book as an eight-year-old, you know, my, my parents, I mean, they didn't, right, they just were looking for something to give me, and they knew I liked to play chess, and it, I mean, I played through every game, 
um, in my room, in my, in my over my chessboard. You know, had them all memorized at some point. So, um, oh, that book was deeply fun. It's because of that book that I'm a one e four player. Um, you know, for better or for worse. I mean, I, I <laughs> really expanded. I played a nice game against Stewart uh, in the 1992 uh, U.S. Championship, actually, where I played D4 because I knew he was going to play the Queen's Gambit accepted, and I prepared a nice line and and won that. So I, I'm Vivek Rao. I once played Knight F3. So every so often I've deviated, but for the most part, I've been a religious E4 player. It's really because of Bobby. Um, yeah, that book, I would say, um, well, first of all, the voice in that book is really engaging and and honest and clear. Um, I didn't know it at the time, but of course, is very much thanks to Larry Evans, right? Who who yeah. um, edited that book um, pretty pretty uh, pretty deeply. So I I think actually I didn't I didn't understand what Bobby Vischer's voice really was until many years afterwards which is good <laughs> because because you know there's a lot of unpleasant stuff in bobby fisher's uh you know sort of personality that kind of got filtered out um but um the book the the games were really interesting the analysis was really deep i mean that when fisher had this it was one of the, one of the things i think that's really interesting about that book um you can contrast it with someone like Kasparov, for example. Kasparov goes deep all the time. And that's great. And it's fascinating. I mean, it's I mean, I'm a huge fan of Gary and I'm a huge fan of, of the books that he's written. But when you go deep all the time, it doesn't it doesn't teach you when you should go deep. You know what I mean? Yeah. In that book, in my 60 memorable games, there are moments where he goes very deep because it's necessary to understand what's happening and because it's the only way to tell the story. And then there's a lot of other times when he just goes deep enough. And I think that's a there's a clarity to that that I think is not widely appreciated, but but I think is pretty profound. So I think that's one thing about it I really like. Um, there is, um, you know, he 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 tells enough of the story of each game, and he he tells it not just from the dry perspective of what happened, but but oftentimes he'll say what he was thinking. You know, like like I like this famous game against Trifunovich, where he's like, you know, I I almost played this, but it seemed like things were getting too quiet. And suddenly I realized he prepared a trap, you know, like that sort of thing. Right. Um, and it, it's just really engaging. The game against Byrne, where um, the amazing game, right, where where he goes knight takes f2, knight g4 check, and knight takes e3. And then instead of taking the rook on d1, he takes the knight on g2, and then he plays d4. And like, like whites up a piece for a pawn, and it doesn't look like it should be that bad, but there's just... But, but the king is just naked. There's just no way to defend it. I mean, it's just an amazing game, right? Not only is the game amazing and the analysis is really fresh, but the way he tells the story is funny and engaging. Now, I don't know how much of that is Larry Evans, right? But, you know, like this is the famous, like, like um, they thought that, like, the, they thought in the analysis room, 
that White was winning until he resigned, right? Like, right, yeah. Like, like, it's just so, it's just so captivating. Like, yeah, that, that book is really something special. And um, I think there are other amazing books that have been written um, that one can easily compare to that as being as worth reading and so forth. But there's nothing of quite that genre, that level of clarity and sort of somehow the right level of engagement with the games, deep when it should be, clear otherwise. Like that book is really something special. So yeah, that had a profound um, impact on me as so many other people. Um, when I was younger, um, I read The Art of Attack in chess. That had a big impact on me. Um, Pawn Structured Chess, uh, the Hans uh, Kmok book. I don't know if you pronounce his name right. Um, and um, also Andy Soltis wrote a couple books I really liked. Uh, 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 also about Pawn Structured. Maybe he, maybe, maybe he, maybe his book was called Pawn Structured Chess. Yeah, Soltis's book was called Pawn Structured. Yeah, okay, Pawn Structured Chess. I forget what the Hans Kmok uh, book. Pawn Power, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, and then also uh, uh, Soltis wrote this book, The Art of Defense in Chess, which I thought was really nice. Um, I I loved I always loved reading the books by the world champions and actually when I, when I would teach people one of one of the pieces of advice I would always give and I continue to give this advice the best books to read are the game collections by the world champions just you know whether it's Alekhine or Bukvinik or Tal um uh, you know fisher of course uh kasparov just given us like this incredible feast of books like his his uh his his uh his modestly um titled uh uh my great predecessors uh collection is uh it's an amazing series of just an amazing series of books my god um all these books are just incredible and so worth reading. When I was younger, I read the Tall book um, really affected me deeply. I read I read Alakine, I read Bogvinik. Um, and then the the Bronstein book on the 1953 um, uh, candidates, uh, Zurich candidates tournament. That was a big one. I read that one backwards and forwards. Great book. So all these books, so whether they're game, whether they're tournament books or game collections written by the truly great players, there's so many of them. And I think I think like that plus openings and end games will get you so far in chess. You've got the true classical education. Yeah. Well, um, this you know we're lucky in chess. We, we have a tremendous literature. As well. Yeah. It's really fun. Yeah. I hope that people like Magnus. Like I hope. I mean, obviously, it's great that we have so much more access to the thought processes of the top players. But I hope that they just write a physical book too. You know, I hope that it's not just like videos and stuff like that because it is a great legacy it is a great legacy yeah i mean of course it is also true that computers allow us to i mean i i think chris on your on your podcast was talking about this sort of the gambit app that allows him to yeah you know i mean it's, once again there's so much that's possible with computers um uh so i think i don't think it has to be books because i think there's so much um, media that's possible, so not just sort of gamifying and, and providing the entertainment value, but also in terms of uh, obviously chess base was just this phenomenal leap forward, right? And there's so much you can do there. So I'm a big fan of all that stuff. But yeah, I agree with you. I mean, <laughs> the book is there. You know, 
the book doesn't go away just because you've got all this other stuff and there's and there are things that the book can do that nothing else can do and so yeah i i hope that magnus writes a book eventually and i'm glad that all of these grandmasters eventually seem to to write books because i think we're all better off for it yeah okay so patrick one more question if you're if you're up for it we've got one more from a patreon supporter this is from my friend neil bruce uh who says uh he's a huge fan of your complete idiot's guide to chess he thinks it's the best first chess book for a novice Uh, and he asks have you thought about writing a new book for intermediate or advanced players no i think the i think the time for me to have done that would have been uh, the late 90s. And I, that's very nice, thank you. I, I put a lot of work into the um, Complete Idiot Guide to Chess when I wrote that book in 1997. Um, and I'm pretty proud of it. I think it, I think it is a, a, a good book. Um, I mean, of course, there are plenty of, of, of good basic chess books, but I think that's, that's a good one. Um, and I think that would have been the time for me to try to write uh, a book for the intermediate level because I was really sort of into it then, but it was at a time in my life when, um, you know, I was I was writing my senior thesis. I was taking the LSAT. Did not end up um, going to law school. I was I, I ended up you know do, going to consulting instead, um, and I was uh, you know uh, had a full course, course load at Harvard to finish up. So I was and and during that time I was writing the complete AIDS guide to chess. So I was a busy boy and. Um, and I, at that point, I didn't have the uh, uh, sort of the energy to uh, to do that. But um, I don't know. To, to be honest, I don't know whether I would have had anything to contribute. I mean, I wouldn't have. Let me put it this way: I I wouldn't want to write a book like intermediate level. You know, sort of like these books we were talking about, for example, that Andy Soltis wrote. I wouldn't wanted to write one of those unless I felt like I really had something to say. Um, and, um, in many ways, you know, whether it's like sort of the art of attack in chess or pawn power in chess or sort of, you know, the pawn structure chess, I think in many ways, these books are even more impressive because they're, they're really interesting books by good grandmasters, right? Not world champions, but good grandmasters who really have something interesting to say. Um, and I don't think I ever had that. I think what I did have was um, the articles I wrote um, for the American Chess Journal. Um, I'm proud of those. And the book I wrote about the World Championship match, I'm proud of that. I had something to say. Um, and, you know, it's not the most original thing. Like, you know, you, <laughs> you're a second for world champion, and so you write a book about it. But I thought it was a good book, you know. And um, if I'd had something to say, I, 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 I could have been motivated to do it. But at this point... Maybe I'll find a way to help professionalize chess. And if anyone's interested, I'd be happy to talk to him about it. Like, I think that's the way that I could contribute to chess at this point, I think. Uh, yeah, it sounds like you've got some great ideas. So any, any- uh... Another washed up grandmaster. <laughs> um, great, well, Patrick, was there any other, anything else you were hoping to, to get in uh, during this interview? This has been quite a treat. Thank you, it's been quite a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Um, no, I'd love to follow up sometime in the future, but I think um, I'm glad you're doing this. I think this is a lot of fun. I certainly enjoy the podcast. I hope people enjoy this interview. 
Thank you. Yeah, I'm sure they will. And yeah, it's a lot of fun for me too. So, so thanks so much. Um, again, we'll, we'll link to your book and your articles and your email address for anyone looking for that stuff. Also your talk at St. Louis chess club, which I highly recommend. So yeah, a lot more that you guys can, can absorb from Patrick, but in the meanwhile, um, I really appreciate your, your sharing your experiences. Special thanks as always to my producer, Matthew Passy, and thanks to those who continue to help spread the word about perpetual chess positive reviews on podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts, glowing comments on YouTube help people discover the show, as does telling a friend or sharing it on social media. Speaking of which, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at BennyFischel1 or join the Perpetual Chess Facebook group and continue the conversation about the latest interview. Sometimes the guests even weigh into these discussions. The Perpetual Chess Instagram page is back in action, so lots of ways to stay engaged, as they say. But most of all, of course, I want to thank those who provide financial support to the show, especially right now with all this COVID craziness going on in the world. Most of all, I want to thank Chessable for sponsoring the show and to everyone who kicks in via PayPal or the Perpetual Chess Patreon page. I also just put up a little donate directly link on the Perpetual Chess webpage where it says donate. But again, if you're not in a position to donate, I'm happy to have people listening and just enjoying the show. So without further ado, I'd like to give thanks to the people who helped make Perpetual Chess possible. I would like to give thanks to the following people and entities. Chessable.com, Quality Chess Books, the Capital City Chess Club, the Apprentice Twitch Channel, Andrew Alhaji, Andrew Bach, Austin Clough, Benjamin Porteau, Bill Sigler, Kathy Carr, Chad Oliver, the Chess Central's Chess Blog, Chris Flanagan, Dan O'Hanlon, Danny Davidson, David Schreiber, I am Dimitri Schneider, I am Eric Rosen. Faraz Sawaf, Gary Foreman, Greg Harst, Greg Natel, Greg Shahadi, Guven Manet, James Kennedy, Jens Green, John Jernigan, John Rockefeller, John Cromarty, John MacArthur, Kelly Palmer, Kevin O'Callaghan, Lucio Casada Silva, the law offices of Stuart Katz, LilaAnalysis.com for cloud-based Lila engine analysis, Michael Can, FM Michael Oblin, Mike Zelazny, Mr. Mike Shahadi, the famous Mr. Dodgy, Peter Sodi, Reuven Fisher, Seattle Chess Club, Stephen Martinez, Thomas Stanix, Thomas Tachenko, Todd Bryant of Strong Chess, Todd Kennedy, Wayne Beam, and I also would like to thank the following. Aaron Waffler, Ace Viega, Adam Ralph of ChessEngland.com, Adrian Gutierrez, Alex Pejas, Andy Ryerson, FM Andre Terakov, Dr. Andrew Perry, Anita Deer, Barry Hessian, Better Chess Training, Bill Juniper, Bill Moran, Brad and Andy Rosen, Brett Howard Lynn, Brian Mullis, Chad Hilton, Dr. Charles Snodgrass, Chris Wainscott, Christopher Baumgartner, Christopher Shabri, Chris Lott, Christopher Wood, I am Christoph Zalecki, a.k.a. Chess Explained, Coach Jay's Chess Academy, Costa Carras, Courtney Fry, Craig Mallon, Daniel Ginsburg, Daniel Naylor, Dave Saylor, David Bleskachek, David Cramley of Chessable.com, Dalen Shelton, Dirk Decker, Drake Domingue, Dwayne Edmonds, Ed Daly, Ethan Smith, Ian Mason, I am Elect, Donnie, Ariel, Fox Valley Chess Club, Francis Latart Lavoie, Frank Tortoris, MD, Gary Andrews, Gary Lewis, Geert Vandervelt, Gerard Barta, Giovanni Russo, Hans Schu, Haris Srinivasan, Jacob Kovacs, Jack Perry, James Aspinwall, James Bonastia, James Muir, Jason Woolham, Jadeep Chakrabarty, Jeff Anderson, Jeffrey Martello, Yep Hoyland, Jerry Wells, Jim Ratliff, JJ Snod, Dr. John Fallon, John Fernandez, John Fontaine, John Hartman, John Jeffrey, John McMurtry, Jonathan Slater, Jordan Goodwin, Jose Rodriguez, Justin Gardner, Jen Shahadi, Joel Rocky, John Thompson, GM, Josh Friedel, IM Kari Christensen, WGM Katarina Nemsova, Kelly Palmer, Kevin Pryor, I am Kostya Kowiecki, 
Krishna Gopala Krishnan, Kyle McAvoy, Larry Ryforth, Laura Boyovsky, Martin Knudsen, Martin Krug, Matthew Passy, Matthew Tedesco of SeattleChessMeetup.org, Mechanics Institute Chess Club of San Francisco, Michael Allard, Michael Hudson, Miguel Arispide, Mike Clem, Mitchell Fabian, Nate Solon, Neil Bruce, Nigmat Mulajanov, Olaf Mueller-Michaels, GM Pascal Charbonneau, Passy Passan, and Paul Bain, Paul Clarkson, Paul Sweeney, Paulo Santana, Peter Lux, Randy Temple, Ricky Grijalva, Richard Hallenbeck, Robert Turner, Roy Yearwood, Ryan Berg, the Say Chess YouTube channel, Scott Doherty, Scott McKinnon, Sebastian Finsterwater, Shane Unger, Stefan Roller, WGM Tatyab Abrahamian, Tim Brennan, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, Tom Edsel, Tomas Komanich, Tony Rotella, Tyrin Price, Vishnu Srikumar, William Brock, William Juniper, William Hogarth, William Peterson, FM Zhao Cheng of Chess1000.com, and last but never least, Zhivko Stoyanov. Thanks for listening, everyone. I will catch you all next week. Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.